0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast. My name is Natalie Nahai, and in this second series, I'll be exploring our relationship with the living environment. These 10 intimate conversations will touch upon everything from psychology, sustainability, and human behaviour, to political and economic systems, and the narratives we inhabit to make meaning of our place in this world. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast. Today I'm very excited to be talking with David Holmgren from his home in Australia. David is an environmental designer, ecological educator and author, best known as one of the co-originators of the permaculture concept with Bill Mollison. Following the publication of their book, Permaculture One, back in 1978, David went on to develop, consult and supervise various urban and rural projects and has since been presenting lectures, workshops and courses all around the world, although he gave up international air travel on environmental grounds over a decade ago. As well as being involved in the practical side of permaculture, David is passionate about the philosophical and conceptual foundations for sustainability, and these are the core themes he explored in his seminal book, Permaculture, Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability really interesting thing about this book is that it's had a significant influence on the development of transition initiatives around the world, which we'll be hearing about in a little bit. But first of all, David, thank you so much for joining me. Ah
1: good to be speaking with you.
0: So before we dive into the other questions, let's start from the beginning. What is permaculture and where does it originate?
1: Yeah, permaculture is a concept that emerged out of what I call the first wave of modern environmental uh, thinking and action and ideas in the 1970s. It's really a design system for both sustainable living and sustainable land use. So it's concerned with both the production side of the equation, how we get our basic needs, primarily food, uh, from a working relationship with nature through agriculture, forestry, animal husbandry, all the different aspects of of, uh, what people mostly think of as rural land uses but it's similarly concerned with how we live, how we consume uh, the other end of that equation and bringing those two sides uh, back together. I suppose over the, the years it's been associated with uh, um, uh, the counterculture to some degree in the early days and in many developing countries, sort of ecological third-world development. But in a lot of affluent countries today, a lot of people would say, oh, that's a a cool form of organic gardening or uh, self-reliant living. Mm. Of course, those popular perceptions of permaculture are, you know, sort of part of the picture, I suppose, but it's grown and changed and evolved over those decades as well.
0: Mm. And what moved you to explore this path when you when you started out um, investigating these ways of, of relating to our environment and the ways that we get our food and our shelter?
1: Well, I think I, I was, at the time that I met Bill Mollison, a student in a radical course called Environmental Design, which was training architects, landscape architects and urban planners. But on the premise that the world is changing so fast, that mm. there's no point in teaching them a particular set of skills, one has to teach them how to problem solve and think. And in very radical (laughs) free-form education environment, I effectively found myself an external mentor who was not a designer, was an ecologist, or at least met my criteria of what I thought an ecologist should be, rather than a lot of the Reductionist scientists, biological scientists who i 'd met who called themselves ecologists, and uh, yeah, mollison was a, a true Renaissance man, um, enormously skilled in, uh, in the in the practical worlds uh, but he actually, when I met him, he was a senior junior. Tutor in the psychology faculty of another tertiary institution. Oh,
0: that's so fascinating. So he
1: didn't have <laughs> any of the labels that would have meant. Oh yes, here's the ecological designer right. who I want to uh, be my mentor. Oh. It sort of uh, didn't really work like that. Uh, <laughs> but I was interested at the time I met him in the uh, the nexus or the overlap between landscape architecture as a design profession, uh, ecological science and the principles drawn from nature and how we could apply them to the redesign of agriculture. Mm. And I couldn't see anywhere in the academic literature where these three things actually came together. I could see quite a few examples of where two of them came together, but not all three. And that was really the, the seed of the idea that we hatched over the next two years of intensive working relationship and that led to the publication of Permaculture One in 1978 at a time where there was a huge interest in uh, ideas uh, of this sort. Uh, So if that timing had been not many years later Mm. in the early 80s, the idea probably would have sunk like a leather balloon. That's
0: so fascinating. But
1: it it got enough of a boost at that time to carry it through, if you like, the dark decades of the 80s and
0: 90s. (laughs) But what a fascinating way of um, exploring ways to kind of bring existing ideas together in because I think one of the the interesting things that I find that I I also um, query is is the usefulness or robustness of an academic or educational method that tends to split all the disciplines um, without seeing ways in which they can enrich one another and so I'm so interested in the the I guess the fact that your ecological mentor was also a psychologist did he bring his psychological background to the problems that you were seeking to resolve Um, was that part of the mix? Uh, To some extent,
1: I never went to one of his lectures (laughs) (laughs) uh, at the university. Uh, He was incredibly popular, but also very controversial. And he was doing a, he was running a course that would sort of be called today a hybrid between environmental psychology and sociobiology. Um, But he was, uh, uh, you know, a very broad uh, thinker and had come out of uh, wildlife research, originally as a uh, an uneducated rabbit trapper who was employed in the great rabbit research program in yeah. Australia that led to tackling the, uh, the plagues of rabbits with um, biological uh, control. So I was more interested in his sort of ecological knowledge than the psychological side of things. But... We definitely saw all of those things as connected, and although Mm -hmm. permaculture focused uh, primarily on the redesign of uh, the food system, it was really in a context where the ideas of the limits to growth were suggesting that industrial civilization was headed for basically some sort of collapse in the 21st century, Mm -hmm. if not before, due to the limits of resources, and the limits of how much damage you could cause to the global environment before that started to radically affect uh, human systems. So that meant that we were really seeing the need for everything to be redesigned from first principles. And very strong in that mix at the time was, of course, the awareness of society's dependence on fossil fuels, especially mm. oil, because of the first oil crisis in 1973, uh, one year before I met Bill Mollison, and the second oil crisis in 1979, uh, one year after Permaculture One was published. So that was part of what was driving uh, public awareness of you know, what we would today call sustainability issues.
0: Mm. And actually in your book Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability you write about some of the philosophical and conceptual foundations for sustainability what we now call sustainability. Can you talk us through some of these and maybe why they're more relevant than ever especially as we near this this crisis point of no return?
1: Well I suppose the sustainability concept is a, is a tricky one and it's mm. um, been debased by the mainstream discourse that is really seeking to sustain the unsustainable. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's a bit of a no-brainer that a, a society, not just a society, but a culture, and in fact, a civilization now that we can call industrial civilization is based on energy sources that are non-renewable. Hmm. <laughs> because at some point, you face the depletion uh, crisis. Um, And that was sort of understood at the beginning of the industrial era, exactly when that would happen. Obviously, there's been many considerations uh, of that. Um, But I think one of the important things about sustainability is that it's got to be considered in the context of the system scale. So if you look at the financial sustainability of a business, you might evaluate that over its ability to persist for some Years or perhaps decades, Mm. but a civilization really needs to persist for thousands of years to be regarded as demonstrating some sustainability. And with the sign of industrial civilization failing after only 250 years, that's really the very antithesis of sustainability. You know, we can look at a lot of civilizations in the past that depleted their resource base. um, and most of them <laughs> lasted longer than that. Now, of course, the techno-optimistic view of the world is that has always been that there'll be something bigger and better. I mean, it used to be nuclear power, and then for the you know green tech optimists, it will, of course, it for the last thirty or forty years it's been renewable energy. Mm. But these ecological energetic understandings. Of human systems uh, are really unfortunately at a very, uh, could we say, the kindergarten level of understanding. Mm. And it's really tragic that in a supposedly scientifically literate society, we actually have a, a sort of a religious faith in the, the magic of, of technology yeah. and underpinning that, the magic of, or, or the, the innate brilliance of the human species to avert or avoid the limits that Mm. constrain other species of animals and in fact all life. So permaculture has always sort of recognised that there are these two sides to the coin, Mm. the limits, the hard limits that society and its economy is a subset of the natural system and that natural system is really ancient and the energetic laws that govern it govern us Mm. the other side is that recognition that humans can change themselves to an amazing extent (laughs) by changing how they think the way they behave and that side is there in permaculture too recognizing both these limits and as Mollison's uh, tended to say, the yield is only limited by the imagination. Mm -hmm. Well, I've tended to sort of push the other side that, (laughs) no, the the yield is limited by hard energetic uh, and biophysical realities. But Mm -hmm. understanding the balance between those two views in our uh, industrial civilization and recognising that the no-limits idea in the material realm has been one that's been the dominant one. And environmentalism has been raising, oh, actually, there are there are limits to uh, what we can do. So sustainability as a concept, of course, has been struggling with that, how do you have your cake and eat it too? type of uh, (laughs) uh, problem. Um, And uh, uh, permaculture sort of really is coming from, uh, I would say, a deeper framing of that issue, uh, understanding it through the lens of the energetics that drive ecological systems. And uh, it really is bringing those, that energetic and ecological literacy to ordinary people in a sort of, not in an academic, high academic sense, but by prim- primarily reframing how we live. I mean, once we actually get connected to our sources of sustenance by mm. like growing some food, we start to understand real limits. Whereas when we live in the technosphere, um, mm. we, we have the habit that the elites of past civilizations used to have just the small urban elites that somehow they've in this bubble where the king could mandate things and whatever and it just happened mm. but outside that bubble of course most people who in previous civilizations were peasants <laughs> you know or connected to and uh, the natural world and working with it didn't suffer those delusions. Um, but now the whole of society suffers those delusions because of that separation uh, from nature.
0: And I do wonder, this, this separation from nature, our desire to live in more of a virtual space, this sense of disconnection, um, how else do you think that's impacting the ways in which you perceive and relate to our living environment? Because I think you know we can think about supermarkets and going in and seeing whatever food that's there that's already been sanitised and plastic shrink-wrapped and the rest of it. But from a perceptual perspective, so from the sense of our perception of our relationship with nature of which we are a part, how do you think this tech and virtual environment has shaped that and disconnected us potentially?
1: Well, I think we don't have any idea, but it's it's emerging you know, very rapidly. I, in my work on reading landscape and trying to teach people How do you reconnect to being able to absorb and understand from your environment without being told something by someone else or Mm. being taught something or just having been in a place for years or longer so you actually experience something, but how do you actually learn directly by uh, observing and, and interacting in this process we call reading landscape and given that I didn't grow up as a complete um, nature baby sort of child in the in the woods, at, <laughs> at least by the standards of, of the baby boom generation in Australia and growing up in the 1950s and 60s, uh, how did I develop this? And one of the stepping stones is that was realising I grew up without television. Interesting. So even something as you know, long ago and universal as television, I believe has reshaped the modern mind in ways that we, uh, you know, are only just coming to grips with now. So when you then deal with interactive media, um, you know, I think we're just really only beginning to speculate on that. So these, of course, are layers of both new capacities... That make us better adapted to the um, the technosphere, but actually decrease our abilities to actually uh, have a harmonious working relationship with nature. Mm. Now, clearly, you can vary the content. What is the content on TV, or or what is the content that's being, uh, you know, used through Uh, technological media and at the margins that all helps you know what's the intent and and focus of the the content but the way in which these um this mediated world disconnects us is only comes to the fore when you try and redevelop the skills that our ancestors had and you realize we're sort of very, very um, lacking, mm. uh, you know. So, and of course, that, that directly, li- you know, a lot of people who are interested in things like permaculture directly recognise that. People who are university educated and, and, and go, gee, if I had to, I couldn't grow any food to feed myself or, mm. or often do anything, fix any technological or even simple... Things, or maybe even just sharpen a knife. <laughs> uh, so there's, of course, this great interest in sort of reskilling and feeling at home in our environment mm. in a way where we don't, for everything, depend on it being mediated through uh, a device. Mm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky one, the, the relationships. And I think permaculture is always been in a role of an ambiguous relationship to that technology. Mm. It's spread around the world and uh, become effectively a globally spread concept and people uh, uh, involved in permaculture are not actually uh, techno-Luddites, but we also recognise that it's a two-edged sword.
0: Yes. So I think for people who are immersed in this more city-based or technologically-based environment. So for instance, I live in a city, it can be quite difficult to imagine what it might be like to overhaul our current ways of living and experience something else. It can be quite frightening. And one of the things that I think is really inspiring about your life and your life's work is that you show through your own personal lived example that sustainable lifestyles can be realistic and provide actually what's actually a very attractive and powerful alternative to the more widespread, dependent consumerism so what practical steps for people like me who are living in a city who you know I do like plants and I like to be able to grow my own food occasionally but it's a bit limited Um, what practical steps can we make to make our lifestyles more sustainable?
1: Yeah well the the difficulty with um, I suppose those general questions is that often there's a, a frame that there will be some sort of like general universal pattern or even more than that, mm. that there's particular strategies and techniques. And that may be quite a logical thought process when we look at the industrial and the, and the technological world. You know, the design pattern of airports is pretty much the same around the world. Mm. You know, software can be used sort of everywhere. But when we re-engage with nature and people... In a way that's unmediated, then uh, we know with people, language, context, culture, what's our relationship, navigating uh, power relationships. All those things are incredibly complex. Mm. With nature, similarly, it's very specific situation and context specific. So that means everyone's context is uh, different and. So often in mass media, there's a search for, where is the message that will suit the largest number of people? Yes. Whereas permaculture has often been working with, okay, how do enable people who are on some fringe of thinking about their context to help them find those uh, particular things? But in in practical terms, the original permaculture focus on food is pretty fundamental. You know, we need to eat uh, pretty much every day and certainly grow food every year. Whereas if we have to, and in countries like Australia, there's more than enough buildings to not just house all the people there are, but probably house double the population. Mm. So in that sense, we actually don't need any more buildings. It'd be great if new buildings were ecologically designed um, and it'd be great if we spent uh, significant efforts retrofit and adapting buildings, but we need to produce food every every year and do it again the next year and you can't fast-track the seasons. (laughs) So becoming connected to our sources of sustenance uh, for all of us is important and obviously for people in more rural or suburban environments there's a lot more opportunities to directly become to some degree a garden farmer. Mm -hmm. But for all of us, there's the potential to say, who are the people producing my food? How do I get a direct connection to that? And of course, that means really stepping outside or making uh, a step away from the centralized uh, corporate dominated um, industrial food system because there's no way through that to connect to where does this actually come from, mm. uh, or if the connection is there again, it's a mediated, marketed connection. Oh, yes, this is produced you know, by fair trade, organic, on the other side of the world.
0: Yes. Well,
1: that may be good as a substitute for genuine connection, but, um, you know, how do we make that those more genuine uh, connections? So that's both for our own resilience uh, and security in a, a world of challenging futures, but it's also uh, as a way to influence what's really the greatest uh, damage to the environment, which continues to come really through uh, industrial agriculture. In the 1970s, we saw that agriculture, industrialised form of agriculture, was the greatest uh, source of of damage to nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can say more generally since then, the burning of fossil fuels to run agriculture and for whatever purposes, you know, you might say is, is now the biggest uh, single uh, source of, uh, you know, damage to, uh, to nature. But agriculture in all its manifestations still sits there as an enormously complex issue. And it was clear with the, as energy prices went up that a lot of people in the tech world thought they'd move into farming and land use and transform those activities the way they had information technology, Mm -hmm. especially with the biofuels, boondoggle in the United States with corn ethanol. And they quickly found that Moore's law does not apply (laughs) in agriculture. Yeah. Uh, You know, so that this some enormous complexities, obviously, in that uh, um, that aspect that we sort of tend to, to take for granted. And on the other hand, the empowering side of when you experience just growing some food and how wonderful nature is in, you know, how seeds turn into abundance, many mm-hmm. people find that is incredibly uplifting and the sense of their free, innate, ancestral connection to uh, what sustains us, rather than that being through handing a plastic card or, or banknotes over and through that means having the right to eat. Uh, I mean, mm. I, I often find those, I don't emphasise those things because I take it for granted. Uh, but so many people continue to say that that, experience of growing even some of their own food uh, was uh, you know at a personal psychological level and their sense of the world uh, just that it was good for their mental health.
0: Yeah and deeply exciting I mean I think it's for me it's a bit like magic if you plant seeds especially with for instance chili plants which you can't find chilies where I live very much in Barcelona Um, and they're quite tricky to grow but if you get one out of five that sprouts and becomes this beautiful little chili plant the excitement of actually seeing this thing happen without really much intervention from my hands at all um it's magical for me it feels magical and i I wonder if um, you know our our, the way in which we kind of lift science and uh, technology and we put that at the center of our understanding of what it means to be human to be advanced we kind of miss out on this more magical thinking this kind of way of experiencing our environment as really rather special and mysterious and yeah and that that for me feels quite fundamental that we we're, we're lacking that experience somehow that's, that's yeah that many of our previous generations I would imagine would have had a keen and everyday present sense of
1: and it's interesting that people doing that were found over the decades has led to people who you know, most of them don't go on to become farmers, but they are people who then incredibly appreciate people who earn their living by Mm. producing food. They actually become very good customers of not just um, organic, small-scale local production, but often community-supported agriculture where people are paying in advance commitment to purchasing fresh food for a season from a farmer and allowing that uh, farmer to get a, a much better, more equitable living uh, mm. than most people yeah. uh, in the field of agriculture, which is still, you know, in terms of uh, economics, the, you know, the, the dead end of, of our economic spectrum.
0: Mm. So, in terms of those sorts of systems, so the agricultural system that's currently in place, which is supported and enshrined by our political and economic structures, do you think there are ways in which permaculture principles can be applied to these systems to overhaul them to help us transition to something which is more um, sustainable, that's less damaging?
1: Well, definitely, in the in the broad sense, permaculture ethics and design principles uh, can be applied across. Uh, we say, the seven domains of the permaculture flower of everything in society. Uh, but the scale and the entrenched nature of those current systems means the resistance to that is is very, very deep and structural. Mm. But even if it wasn't, and there's through desperate crises, you know, I got rung up by the, the Prime Minister or, you know, even became the uh, ecological dictator of Australia and mm-hmm. said, right, you know, we need to do this, this and, and this. At that scale and the rapid change, it's inevitable that that process would be not just chaotic, but have massive unintended consequences. Mm. So part of the problem is that in society we are trying to reform these existing, entrenched and very rigid systems that have emerged out of industrial uh, processes powered by fossil fuel. When we don't actually have any experience of how to redesign whole systems at a small scale. Mm. So when the permaculture focus is mostly at the household level, Um, personal change within a household context, uh, community level, uh, small enterprise. So this process where we actually completely reshape our thinking and build systems from the ground up, uh, often in the shadow of the centralised system, is a a more realistic pathway uh, Mm. than how could we redesign that system from the top. So I think to some extent that centralised system will inevitably produce a lot of lock-in and as the sustainability crisis uh, gets worse, one of the last things that government will uh, give up on (laughs) is actually ensuring that there's food in the the centralised supermarket system. Mm. But, you know, so they, you know, the resources will go towards that, you know, um, uh, whereas what can happen with uh, growing your own food, farmers markets, community supported agriculture, small scale, uh, local food supply systems is that those can develop and build up to an alternative model and inevitably that involves a degree of parasitizing of the system which is has no future in a large larger historical sense mm. and is highly resistant to reform mm. so for example you know we use containers both for our own preserved food and for uh, you know, packaging up bulk food that we buy from farmers for a local food share, and it's great to have zip lock plastic bags and um, uh, screw on cap bottles and. All of these things that are, of course, just going into landfill Mm. from the mainstream food system. But effectively, we get container technology, the world's best container technology, you know, and can choose, no, we don't want those, thanks, Um, you can leave these ones for us. (laughs) Uh, Whereas, of course, our ancestors, container technology, uh, pottery urns and all that sort of stuff was a critical part of being able to store food. Uh, So... That's an example of how a lot of these parallel systems that need to be evolved won't be supported by government, aren't supported by corporations because there's not a business model, but they can get going in the shadow of those systems. And I think that's entirely appropriate, that the innovators and experimenters in that world also get first dibs. It's a bit like um, uh, getting your, own, uh, your clothes from the opportunity shop um, while recognising that if everyone got their clothes from the opportunity shop, um, there might be a lot of competition. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, uh, recognising if you push against the tide of consumer capitalism, there's a huge amount of social pushback that you are doing the wrong thing. Mm. Um, And at the extreme, uh, there will be legal pushback too because Mm. everyone's responsibility, primary responsibility in our society at a political level is to be a consumer. Mm. And it's incredibly subversive to show that you can live in a way without being that, uh, that consumer. So, you know, some people have described permaculture as revolution disguised as gardening. <laughs> I uh,
0: like
1: that. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it doesn't set out to be revolutionary, but it's inevitable that if mm. you actually design things from ecological principles, then that will eventually run directly up against the way our society works and its uh, governing power structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I see at the moment there's still enormous opportunities to play, or we can call it experimentation, or, or research these new models to some extent at the fringe of society and reflecting available wealth in society while at the same time the large centralised systems, whether they be of health, education or food supply, are reasonably functional and intact. Mm. But the prospects for those things, uh, even in our lifetimes, let alone our children and grandchildren's lifetimes, is is very, very different. So uh, permaculture sort of really has always started from a premise of a fairly dark view of the state of the world. Yes. But a very positive, empowering, what can we directly do to create the world we want Mm
0: -hmm. rather
1: than just focusing on fighting the world we don't.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what that might look like because your work has played a significant role in the development of transition towns. What are these and um, how are they helping to shape the way in which we live
1: yeah, well, Transition Towns began from Rob Hopkins' work uh, as a permaculture teacher in Kinsale Island um, more than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his realisation and activism in raising awareness that the twin crises of climate change and peak oil demanded a whole society of society bottom-up approach, sort of really in response to the denial and the action from government Mm. so in framing transition towns he was using uh, permaculture ethics and principles and a host of sort of related psychosocial change methodologies some people would say technologies uh, Mm. to sort of galvanize sort of local community led action to model the necessary change so, that really had a very strong and has a, re- a very strong community level focus, and so the level of government that it's connected to a bit has been local government as mm. the most sort of uh, upfront, direct, you know, closest to people uh, level, um, and yeah, while it began in Britain, trans activism is spread around the world, including back to Australia, (laughs) the birthplace of permaculture. Um, And yeah, so of course there'd be many people involved in transition who wouldn't necessarily be aware of that relationship between permaculture and transition. Mm. So transition um, has involved that uh what i was mentioning about what rob hopkins calls the great reskilling yes. people just learning to do stuff uh again but also thinking about okay how would we organize beyond the household uh level and it naturally attracts people who like people and you know mm-hmm. like community uh process whereas there's also been a lot of permaculture influence yeah, uh, you know, on people who are more sort of home bodies or mm. you know, don't necessarily uh, want to get together with a great group of people even though they you know, they recognise that you can't do everything at the household level. So there's these different strategies also attract, you know, people, you know, with different personality and uh, uh, and priorities. Mm. I mean my role in, in, in the uh, triggering transition towns was indirect in a way but um, Rob Hopkins was very influenced uh, by my book Permaculture Principles and Pathways mm. Beyond Sustainability that came out in 2002. And he'd been pestering me for several years <laughs> to come and run an advanced uh, permaculture course at Kinsale in Ireland, where he lived at a, a rural um, uh, permaculture centre called the, the Hollies. And I eventually agreed in 2005 as part of a round-the-world teaching and study tour. And that also involved um, a conference that he organised in Tiny Little Kinsale called Fueling the Future, which brought together huge number of global experts on uh, peak oil and sustainability and climate change and uh, that was that uh, little cell there starting in Kinsale um,
0: Mm.
1: sort of triggered the uh, the birth of transition which really took off of course in Totnes in Devon
0: because we are coming close to time, there's a few other questions that I want to dive into. And one of the uh, ones yeah. I want to quickly touch on, because I love the idea of it, is one of the other books that you've written more recently, which is called The Art of Frugal Hedonism, uh, which explores the art of spending less and enjoying everything more. And in, you know, we discussed earlier about the fact that we're a hyper-consumerist culture. What are some of the most important habits of mind and actions, do you think, for living frugally and hedonistically? Because I think, some of the issues that we face will only be resolved when we reframe the way in which we perceive the issues um, and what it means to Mm. be living in a different way. So, yeah, frugality and hedonism, how do they fit together?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I think one of the great examples is uh, living... Uh, frugally by self reliance, doing things yourself does involve a lot of main da- mundane jobs mm. that don't require the whole of our attention or capacity. Um, and Annie he Razor Roland in um, The Art of Frugal Listen talks about um, shelling broad beans mm-hmm. and um, uh, feeling a bit overwhelmed by all the self-reliance tasks and going off to visit a neighbour who she hadn't caught up with and having a social time um, potting the broad beans while talking about all sorts of different things. And before you know, the broad beans have been potted. Uh, (laughs) So that just rebuilding what our ancestors do of socialising while doing some productive activity Mm -hmm. instead of the default of socialising while consuming.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh,
1: so that's that's one uh, little example. And I think treating frugal living as an exploration where novelty and surprise make it uh, stimulating, uh, and also the idea of minor deprivation, whether that's in the use of showers, sweets or other desirables, that those minor deprivations actually increase our appreciation mm-hmm of that thing instead of it just becoming you know the special thing becoming ordinary
0: yeah,
1: uh, and and so like the first fruit of the season is is special because mm. we haven't had it and we, we lose that special experience that hedonistic experience by um, the treadmill what's called the hedonic treadmill where mm. you just it Humans just adapt to every situation and just treat everything relatively. They look, they compare with what someone else has and they compare with what they were doing yesterday or what their experience was. And so we can actually, through restraint, through frugality, actually shape uh, our experience so we have actually the best, most intense, most hedonistic experience and oh, just as a byproduct of that we find out we're living um much more lightly on the planet
0: well that sounds wonderful i really like the sound of that <laughs> sort of the scarcity principle coming into play there as well and expectations yeah. um so if i wrap up with the last three questions i'd like to ask you first of all what's your biggest concern for the future
1: well as i said permaculture has always been uh, informed by a very dark uh view of the the state of the world and I came from a, a family of political, radical leftist activists who saw mm. huge injustices I, I, in the world. None of those things have gone away and they have I, I, intensified but I I, I think the, uh, uh, the f- focus on what we can do now while having a sort of Uh, to some degree, an over-the-horizon radar view, which is a lot of my work in future scenarios work, has been to inform people who are already on uh, that positive path. They already have that positive feedback. So the more positive and empowered we are, the more we can grapple with uh, deeper and darker understandings of the challenges of the future but if you sort of dump all those and the ones that people know about already they're already reeling (laughs) from all of those in a in a sort of a a process of denial or avoidance and in some ways to point out you know further of those uh consequences is you know not so uh Useful, but again, it depends on the context. Different people need different messages at different points, and some people are incredibly galvanized by the a sense of urgency and action and even fear, and others only respond through a a, a process of a sense of hope mm. or or vision. Mm. Uh, whereas personally, I haven't I haven't had that grand vision of this is this world I'm uh, trying to create I've never needed that to act positively uh, in the world and Mm. to some extent it seems those visions can sometimes be uh, a sort of um, a bit like master planning in landscape design where where there's two problems. Either people ignore the plan, uh, the grand plan, Mm. uh, in which case it was a waste of effort to put all that time that could have gone into direct action of what's needed immediately, or people follow the plan exactly, Mm. which always turns out to be wrong anyway. Uh, Oh, no. You you know, so, you know, I'm very sceptical about the, you know, the... The charismatic. This is the solution, you know, and mm. it's great to see political discourse around things like uh, green new deals. Mm. But unfortunately, for some of us that have been in this game for a long while, gee, they look really naive. <laughs> um, oh, but maybe they use they're useful in in sort of you know rallying people to an idea. But of course, you know that can also be rallying to ideas that are are not actually uh, useful even if they're well intended.
0: Mm. Okay, so I'm not going to ask you about what vision you're working towards achieving because (laughs) I think it sounds like that looks very different for different people but involves reframing and reconnecting our relationship with the environment and with local producers. Um, Well, I'll
1: give one example. My essay, Feeding Retro Suburbia, Mm -hmm. from the backyard to the bioregion. It was written to help inspire and motivate the retro suburban garden farmers who I'm Mm -hmm. trying to enliven uh, to do more everywhere, Uh, but showing them how what they're doing could potentially produce about 25% of a relocalised food system that included commercial urban farming, wild harvesting, and hinterland agriculture, at mm-hmm. least in the Australian context. So that's an example of where I have done, you know, the positive vision thing and say, mm-hmm. look, what we're doing, this is what it could actually realistically develop into. And that, I recognise, is something that a lot of people go, yes, you know, <laughs> therefore what I'm doing is contributing to that and that, uh, that empowers a lot of people to do great stuff.
0: Mm. So, yeah, so you're talking about this retro suburban way of um, encouraging people to make change so they see that they're making a contribution. If people are listening now and are thinking, oh, I'd like to start somewhere, what single action can we take as individuals to start somewhere to build a more resilient future? Bearing in mind that obviously context makes a huge difference. And yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think uh, we can all and should get our own house in order And I think a lot of that can come through radically radically changing our daily habits. Mm -hmm. And if family, colleagues and friends don't agree, uh, at least to some degree, then find a circle of support to allow you to be true to yourself in modelling the change you want to see in the world. And as we gradually, you know, look at what's the most obvious things to do uh, and that is uh, sometimes it's starting small. Um, for other people, they need to make a big step to break out of the, the gravitational pull of uh, past past patterns. Mm. Uh, but it really is in those very personal daily things where we do have control. That's where we have power and that's where we can therefore make the greatest... Changes away from whatever um, dysfunctional patterns, and that might involve uh, something as um, talking to a neighbour you've never spoken to and doing some uh, non-monetary exchange of mm. um, uh, food or produce or anything, building those connections at at that level and internally in whatever the household is. I think is. Uh, the way forward for all of us.
0: Wonderful, thank you. So, if people want to find out more about all of these fascinating topics that we've discussed, um, where are the best places for them to go?
1: Uh, well, of course, that's different in different uh, parts of the world. But um, uh, our retrosuburbia.com website is is talking about all of the the resources and action that. Uh, is spilling off from my latest book, uh, Retro Suburbia, A Downshifter's Guide to a Resilient Future. Uh, I know in Britain, uh, the British Permaculture Association is uh, uh, developing a soon-to-be-launched website of 52 uh, climate actions that is all, you know, for people in society generally, but it's all framed informed by permaculture thinking Mm. uh lots of things depending on yeah where you are in the in the world of course
0: okay and i'll also link in the show notes to holmgren.com.au to retrosuburbia.com transitionnetwork.org to your wonderful books and also to your uh store so the permaculture store i will link to that as well in case people want to dive in a bit deeper um David, thank you so much for spending the time with me this morning. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you.
1: Uh, Great to talk with you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag #hivepodcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.